Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. This week, we've got a very special episode for you. I'm joined once again by Bob Costa, national reporter for The Washington Post, the host of Washington Week on PBS, and a longtime fan of our other guest, Mickey Hart. Mickey is the legendary drummer and percussionist of The Grateful Dead. He's also been a part of countless other musical endeavors over the past 50 years. It's great to have Bob and Mickey here together on account of their mutual admiration and some of the common experiences shared by reporters and musicians. We'll discuss music as a unifying force and its scientifically proven ability to enhance the healing of our minds and our bodies. Also, the power of rhythm, not only in music, but in life. Even more important to be mindful of, as all of our daily rhythms are out of sync during this period of confinement. Yet I know this moment will propel new forms of creativity in music and beyond. We're already witnessing a real-time soundtrack of this global crisis streaming directly from artists stuck at home across the globe. Are you ready? I am. Let's get the show on the road. Robert Costa, welcome back to The Politics of Truth. And Mickey Hart, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, Bob. It is an honor to have both of you guys here today. Uh, Mickey, you've spent your career unifying people through music. You have uh, advocated in the halls of power about scientific research to the ends of music's power to heal. How has music helped you personally cope with the shock of the, uh, this age of pandemic we're living in right now? For me, music is everything. Besides my health and my family, without music, I wouldn't be whole. So it's a matter of life for me. If I don't embrace the thing I love the most, I couldn't operate. I don't, I don't know what kind of a person I would be. I can't live without some kind of music or sound. So I really don't have much choice in a way. You know, I have to be around music in order for me to be sane or even to be able to think and commit to things or not or anything. You know, it's just everything. It's just everything. I would just jump in on that. In these terrible moments, and you look throughout history, often creativity flows from these kind of horrible moments in human history. And even think about the dead 
I mean, it's the Vietnam era, part of the 60s. There's change in the air. And I've already seen anecdotally with music right now, people recording in their homes, artists are forced to think about their songs. I've seen bands playing through their catalogs on acoustic guitar in a way they would never engage with their, their music before because they have time to sit back. And I can't wait to actually, the summer of 2021, God willing, people start to tour again to see what pours out of the music community after being holed up. Well, you better believe that artists are being artists now, unless you're not an artist. You have to stay creative all the time. The songs that come out of this contagion will be very interesting. I myself, I work in my studio every day. I have a, a system with my engineers where I can be in my studio and, and I can record and do everything remotely. That's my lifeline. That's my light. And that's also my inspiration to go on. We meet every day. We call ourselves the Sonic Tonic Club. <laughs> <laughs> so the Sonic Tonic Club is in session. We work on drones that uh, are, are healing kind of drones that work on neurologic function. Uh, Zakir Hussein and I are working on our next Planet Drum masterpiece. And... Um, and so forth. You know, I, I keep active every day. When I play music every day, I can understand what's happening. I can see it very clearly. When I stop, I don't see it very clearly. And that's the same way with a listener. Music, as Bob Marley would say, music has plenty power. And mm. it does. The reason that it does is because of the vibratory nature of music. Music is controlled sound, humanly controlled sound. Sound is vibration. The universe is a vibratory universe. 13.8 billion years ago, at the beginning of space and time, was the first vibratory moment, Big Bang. That's been washing over us for all these years. We are multidimensional rhythm machines created with the nature of being in rhythm. So sound and rhythm is part of the physiology of the body. It's all about rhythm. It's all about sound. And, and that's what it was built for, actually. I'm just curious to both of you, just as a listener, what about the power of the audience as an instrument, to not have that audience out there as an instrument for you to engage with? Well, it's really hard playing for yourself. You know, <laughs> when you're playing in a studio or something, you know, it's very difficult. The Grateful Dead or Dead and Company's a live band. We, we perform live. The audience is everything because the audience is is us and we become part of the audience and we exchange energy all night. I mean, I give it to them, they give it back. I give it back to them, they give it. So there's this uh, dynamic all night with the audience and playful, but uh, without them, there'd be no us. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just as simple as that. Yeah, I, I agree with Mickey. And earlier we were talking about how a, a certain song that maybe um, maybe a Franklin's Tower played in Chicago one night has a different personality than a Franklin's Tower played in New York four nights later. And uh, I find that same way with the music I play and the guys I play with. That crowd and the changing personalities of the crowd from night to night has a direct impact on the energy and therefore the energy flow changes. And so there's always a variation. And that's the one the one good thing we got from, from the dead, uh, the Avert brothers, we took the idea of 
let's do a different set list every night. Let's switch it up every single night. And that came directly from the tradition that you guys set and the, the example you set. And uh, I've been trying to get these guys to jam for years. They try, they do their best, but you know, they're North Carolina country boys. You know, they like to play songs, you know, uh, jamming songs. takes a little bit of different kind of chemistry. You That's know? right. You, you have to be, you have to be okay with failing. And, <laughs> you know, and if you can take that, <laughs> lots, lots of failure. But when you ring the bell, you ring it. And that's what they're there for. That one magic experience. And if we can hit that bell once or twice a night, then you can't find it anywhere else in the world. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, a magical event. So Mickey, I've heard, you know, the, the big promoters, obviously they have nothing to promote right now. So they're a little bit panicked. And I've heard scenarios of bands playing an empty, like an empty Red Rocks or, or an empty Gorge or, you know, the, the great baseball writer, Jason Stark wrote an article a couple weeks ago about Mike Piazza hitting the home run after 9-11 against the Braves. And it was the sound of the crack of the bat. And the roar of the crowd that just signified healing and just goodwill. And, and it was, it was just, it was healing. Uh, wh wh how could you, um, could you imagine uh, you guys playing in an empty, empty venue? It's not my first pick, I guess, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But when you light an audience up, you know, the adrenaline starts to flow. It starts to flow in you and it starts to flow in the uh, in the audience. And what they're really doing is moving uh, gamma waves and beta waves. And, you know, it's all about neurologic function. That's what music really is about. And knowing how to move the mind and being able to use music as more like transportation, more like enlightenment, more like consciousness, raising of consciousness. That's what music is really about. Music's primary focus is to engage people in life. Everything comes from that. You know, after that, you can, you can do protest songs, you could do anything you want, but that's what music really does primarily. So can we talk for a minute about the actual research that you've uh, supported and been a part of where music can slow the aging process? You've mentioned this neurologic function several times already today. Talk a little bit about the actual research and your involvement in it. It's all about rhythmic cognition. And some people in the world, like Adam Ghazali at uh, UCSF, he's working on making games for Alzheimer's folks who, who can regain their cognition. These kind of sciences are popping up all over uh, with uh, Nina Krauss at Northwestern. Uh, MIT is studying some of my drones, actually, for, for neurologic function. So it's all about the brain. Happy brain's a good brain. You know, <laughs> if you look at it in those terms, if you keep your brain happy, you're going to be happy. And you're going to be sharp. And you're going to know what your mission is here. Have you ever thought about, have you done research about where this appreciation in the brain for percussion comes from? Is it, is it almost an embryonic experience where you're hearing your mother's heartbeat? Where does sure. it come from? Sure, that's where it came from. Absolutely. You, you were born in rhythm. Uh, and your mother's tummy, you, your mother's heartbeat was about 130 uh, decibels. You come out to a whole new rhythm world and you're born, and there are all these new rhythms. So, yeah. Neurologic function is everything, everything. So you have to think about it in brainwave function. So it's not about percussion so much, Bob. It's more about the rhythm of things. Now, rhythm can be played on many instruments and it can be used in many ways. 
Percussion is just one way it could be used. It, rhythm in life is important to recognize because as you move through life, if you're in rhythm, things are going well with you. When you're out of rhythm, you step in front of a car, you know, or whatever, and you feel it. So being in rhythmic terms, like with my family, I've, we have a little beef or something. Uh, I look at it more in rhythmic terms. I say, okay, sweetheart, we're out of rhythm. Let's reset. You know, this is, we're, we're just out of rhythm. That's all. And then we start talking and become part of the rhythm again and get it. Then it works. So rhythm in life and not just in music, but music talks about life because that's how we talk about our dreams, things we want to be, you know, all the things that are bad, all the things that are good. Uh, music is the way we, we talk about it. We talk about those emotions that you can't talk about in words. So it's a nonverbal kind of an experience, uh, except when there's words, of course. I have a question for both of you as just a layman. What is the rhythmic dance like between the bass that Bob plays and the drums? We always see the bassists in concerts, whether it's the dead or others, glancing at the drums. But what is that actually like for people who play these instruments? For me, Mickey, uh, just to I'll quickly interject here, and then I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I tell people, because I've been teaching bass lessons uh, you know, dur during this break, and I had to sit down, and before I started teaching lessons, I had to sit down and think about it, right? What do I do on the bass? What's the most important thing for the bass player to know? And the, the number one rule I found was glue yourself to the drummer. For our concerts, our drummer, Mike Marsh, I am fully fixated on him. If I am locked in with him, I don't care what anybody else does the whole night. If I feel like he and I were locked in, it was a great night. And those nights when we can't quite just be fit, talk about a relationship and a marriage, when we can't be like right, you know, in groove with each other, dancing with each other, I'm, I want to fit him like a glove. And those nights where I can't do that for one reason or, or another, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm bummed out. Rhythm pumps the blood through the veins of, of the band. Without rhythm, you play in space. There's no groove. And without the groove, you can't dance. And if you can't dance, then you're not really with the music because the music should make you dance. We're a dance band primarily. We always were. That's what we did to people. We make them dance. And when I get up and I feel the audience and, the, and I look across at Bill, which we're trying to feel each other. We're trying to see who we are every day and we kind of get the idea. And then once the music starts, once we lock into the groove, we hold it tight. And we don't let go of it unless we have to. So we are very conscious of being the primary source of rhythm in, in, in a band where bass is not really a rhythm instrument. Guitar, not really. Piano, not really. So, yeah, it's important when you're a drummer. You also have a big responsibility. If you're not right, the band's not right. And right. the band's not right, you all fail. Simple as that. You learned it. I found out years ago but in jamming it's a different thing you know in jamming you have to let yourself go and trust your brother or sister and create something new not just play over the changes you know create some real new music out of the old it started with us we couldn't remember what we played the day before in the old days that's how it started you know so we never blamed never blamed anybody for any mistake there was one good thing we did because there was a lot of mistakes. And so if you started a blame game, 
you would never make it as a band. We figured that out in a minute. So we never blamed anybody. It worked. But you fail. You do fail. And failure is the only way to progress, right? Through failures is how we progress. Failure and success. Once you're successful at something, you try to hold on to it. And then that's how we built Grateful Dead Music. We played hours and hours. We used to practice 8, 10, 12 hours a day. I mean, real serious practicing. Nobody left the room. It was, it was some really long jams. And, and, and once you play through your, your, your licks, then you find a whole other world out there that's beyond your normal lick, what you, you know, the thing that you play, your normal rhythm. And then hopefully there's new birth. What's the difference between practice and being on stage? I mean, I never knew that, that the dead would practice for eight, nine, ten hours a day. Oh, yeah. Well, in practice, that deep practice, we were after Grateful Dead music. What do we have and how can we work with what we have and how can we move people and how do we learn to be a band? Remember, the Grateful Dead was a blues band. You know, it was just basically a blues band. But every everybody's playing the blues. So we learned how to dig a little deeper, let us say, to find that music was just in under the surface. And by playing long, we found the ins and outs and we found ourselves as bandmates and brothers. You know, it's not that we were just um, thrown together in a band. We, we were on a mission for God, Bob. You know that. And you seem to always be able to welcome new players into the band over the years. It just seems to be an enterprise like the dead to really carry on for decades, not just a few years as a band. You have to be open, it, it seems, to new sounds or even new players to keep fresh. Well, we were always open for uh, open to life, you know, the possibilities of life and the possibilities of music. And we weren't afraid. We weren't afraid to take people in and try to groom them and see if they would make the cut. Some did, some didn't. But we as a group, a core, but we stayed together. We bonded really early, you know, we lived together. So, I mean, we live in the same house, eat out of the same pot, um, so forth. And something happens to you. It becomes family, thicker than uh, Valed is thick. So you become blood brothers in a way. So then you go up on stage, you're still blood brothers. And you're still trying to work out and become high and get the job done as musicians and our artists to raise consciousness. And that's what we always, that's what we did the best. We weren't the best band necessarily in the world, but we could do this one thing that nobody else could. And that's what happened. When you say that thing, what do you mean? Well, magic. Basically, we're able to throw away your daily cares and reach for a higher, a higher order and a higher consciousness. So it's about trust. It's about consciousness and about how serious you are. I mean, when you dream music 24-7, this is serious. So Grateful Dead was 24-7. In my dreams, when I woke up, you know, when I was eating, that was going through my mind, everybody's mind. So we became that kind of an organism where we kind of throbbed together when we got on stage. So we say, what is that thing? Can I define it? Not really, but I can understand that it, it happened in a way that no one could have imagined. So it was outside of our individual plan or something. No one had exact plan. This was like a no plan kind of thing. So if you can go in through life dedicated and open yourself up for anything, then you will grow. Then you will grow. If you don't, 
you will stay the same. Music is life. Life is music. That's how it worked for us. And you, you started to mention the great Bill Graham. Thinking back to the bills he would put together, the, the the shows he would put together. Talk a minute about him and the relationship the band had and you had with with, with Bill. Bill? Yes, Bill, yeah, yeah. Bill was a, he was a real. Um, if you were a friend of his, it was a gas. And if you weren't, you didn't like him very much because he was a hard business guy. You know, he was like an emperor in his world. But we were best we were best friends. Uh, we went back to the years before when he was a waiter at this country club in Long Island, he upstairs waiting tables. And I was downstairs flipping burgers. We never knew each other back then, but we were in the same place at the same time. When we, when I was a kid, 14, he was older than me, about 10 years. So he could go to the upper room where Tito Puente, the great Latin player was, and that he was my God. So that's what I was there for, just sneak in and, in the kitchen, just to listen to Tito all night. And he was there because he loved Latin music. So Bill kind of put a, dr a dress on us, you know, kind of dressed up rock and roll. He saw the lights and he, and he said, oh, loud music, lights. Oh, yeah, I got it. <laughs> and so he was the only straight guy in the bunch. So he rented the Fillmore and no one else could do it. You know, and he had a watch. None of us had watches. We didn't know what was going on. And Bill kept, he had a clipboard and he used to write things down on three by fives. He made things work. Before it was just hippie operations with conscious wooden start. We were hung up in Omaha somewhere with a hippie van, whatever. But Bill, he made it into a business because we were giving the music away. We were playing free most of the time, you know? So Bill said, hey, once our instruments started being repossessed, Bill said, hey, this is a business. You know, you can't operate without your instruments. You got to ask people to pay for this. We wanted to give it all away. That was the whole thing with our music. You know, it was for everyone. So Bill uh, kind of business uh, ourselves. You know, he put us in business in that way. And we were able to always laugh at Bill. He never got under our collars. That's why we became friends. We stayed friends for all those years, the band and Bill, because we just laughed at him <laughs> and we never got mad at him. So Bill was an important part of the San Francisco scene. Yeah. And, and he put together these concerts that had Ravi Shankar and, and maybe you guys on it and very eclectic. If you think back after Jerry passed... Coming into the 90s, there was this new breed of music that was influenced by you guys. If not directly sonically, it was culturally influenced by the world the Grateful Dead created, the scene the Grateful Dead created. We now call it jam music. You guys created a genre. Some would say you came out of what we call classic rock, but you gave birth to jam music. When you look at all the bands that have followed the path that the Grateful Dead set, what do you think of that, like creating a whole new genre of music? Well, more importantly than that is that they carry it forward into the years, you know, and that's how Grateful Dead music will be in 100 years, 200 years, maybe. It'll still be around. They'll still be playing our songs. See, a pamphlet, no matter how good, is never read more than once. But a song is learned by heart and repeated over and over. So that great revolutionary, Joe Hill, the unionizer, wrote that. Well, that's a powerful quote. 
Mickey, and it reminds me about, I think, why the dead resonates still is that the dead has its own songs, no doubt about it, but the dead plays great blues songs from the past, standards. To me, the dead is the dead, but the dead is also American, and it has this American tradition, and of course, world influences, especially through your own percussion, but I mean this in a positive way. It continues kind of the ethos of American music. And that's why, when to Bob's point about current bands, you're really trying to continue this American folk, bluegrass, blues, rock, and it's just always changing. And a part of why I think The Dead was so powerful, it, was, it never got stuck in the 60s sound. The Dead, to me, you could really call the band change. It embraced change. It was always kind of rolling sonically along through the decades instead of just trying to play hits. It was a sound more than a catalog. Yeah, it sure was. It was a spirit more spirit. than the catalog. But the catalog was a big thing. Remember, Robert without Robert Hunter's words, which added, you know, what can I say? It defined the Grateful Dead. It added the myth- mythological uh, aspect to the Grateful Dead. The whole, the book, as, as we say, you know, was written by Bob Hunter. It was kind of the Bible. But they started as an acoustic band. And um, a bluegrass band, and ben, Jerry played the banjo. So think of all of the uh, incarnations of the band from that, from Washington bass to being the loudest band in the world. And then we had no place to go. So okay, Jerry said, okay, now we're the large. <laughs> Sometimes we said we're the loudest band in the world, the most powerful band. Nobody has. Now let's go the other direction. You know, it's just Grateful Dead, amazing, crazy stuff. And so American Beauty and Working Man's Dead came out of that. So it went from the most complicated music to the simplest music. And then back to the other side, back and forth, back and forth. But the blues and uh, bluegrass music, you talk about Americana. I mean, the Grateful Dead was an American band for sure. We flew that flag, and we were not afraid to fly that flag. We were freaks. We were chased around the country by, you know, by uh, the feds and, and about the police, you know, uh, for smoking a cannabis and all the kinds of drug-related uh, issues. We just kept going. We tried to stay one or two steps in front of them, and now look at it. It's legal, you know, but we went to jail for this. And so you talk about protest? <laughs> That was protest when you put, you put skin in the game, go to jail for what you believe in. And it makes it more precious. And you know you're right. You know where you're going. You feel it's right. And, and you see people, thousands of people lighting up, just enjoying life on its own terms, right there, right then, in the now. So the Grateful Dead were able to play in the now. There was no future. There was no past only in a moment. And that's really hard to do. 20, 30, 50,000, 100, 200,000 people out there. How can you just let it go and just play what it feels good without trying to play the audience to death or something like that? Well, to be relaxed in front of people was really a hard thing to do, especially for any, any starting you know, young musician. Once we realized that we could move large crowds, then everything changed then we realized power. We have power. That's what happened at Woodstock. When everybody got to Woodstock, we all looked around and we said, wow, this many of us? 
<laughs> we didn't know how many of us were there. And we didn't know how many people were smoking or, or doing things uh, that were illegal at the time. Uh, but here was five or 600,000 people doing the same thing. Okay, that's group power. And once you saw that, you go, oh, boy. Now, after you left Woodstock, nobody was the same. What was Everything it like, Mickey? What was Woodstock. it like on stage at Woodstock? What was it Terrifying. like to look at that crowd? Terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it was not our day. We are famed for blowing the big ones. We played like played awful. The light went on. It was big spots, and you know, my God. We just were not prepared for that. And Jerry had fear in his eyes. I looked in his eyes and he looked at me like, I go, oh boy, we're in trouble now. And, and we played the best we could. And getting off the stage, I said, hey, Jerry, I, I said, Matt, that was awful. Oh my, oh my God, this is horrible. What are we going to do? He looked at me and said, hey, man, relax. It won't affect our career. He just said, <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. It won't affect our career. And I just walked off the stage with them. But uh, you have to see it through the right eyes. We were not up to our best because we thought it was our party because we were playing free and big crowds and all that. And all of a sudden it came to this big one and the gods were not with us that day. That's, that's the luck of the draw, Bob. I never saw Jerry play, Mickey. Was Jerry always that zen on stage? I mean, he walks off stage at Woodstock and goes, yeah, we're all right. We're okay. Was that kind of his presence? On- yeah. 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 And he had always had a good take on things that nobody else ever did. Like, for instance, um, the, the lighting director wanted $500,000 for new lights. You know, they came through a board meeting. We go, oh, man. Oh, you really need 500,000 for new lights? They're cool the way they are. We love them, you know? And Jerry said, hey, why don't we give it to her? Maybe they're coming for the lights. <laughs> you know, that just stopped it. And we gave her $500,000 for new lights. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, he might've been right. <laughs> On some occasions, perhaps the lights were the thing they were coming for. So he had a take on things that were quite different than anybody else. And that's what made him so much fun. And we laughed a lot. Is there a particular period of the band that you say, man, that sound, that was right on? Or were they all just great in their own way? No, it was the end of the 60s. You could pinpoint it. For me, you know, 67, 68, 69. We were experimenting. We were an experimental music band. We weren't really a rock and roll band. We were experimenting in the psychoacoustics of consciousness. It wasn't playing a cool tune or anything, but yet we were in amongst that cool tune, we were trying to raise consciousness. So 59, 70, I would say we were at our rawest best and we were at top form. Everybody was engaged. And this music was so thrilling to find this new music and being able to practice this new music to find, you had to find it. It wasn't something that came up and bit you. So that was the most exciting, you know, back of Live Dead and Anthem of the Sun. These were totally experimental, but full of heart, you know, and Grateful Dead music is like that. You never know what you're going to get. As soon as the groove starts, we're in the moment. If you can do that, 
then you have a future. Then you have something that's uh, life-giving and is an organism that brings good vibes, good health, uh, people getting together, great community. I mean, they come there to see each other and to bond, and which is kind of sort of the peripheral sound of <laughs> the soundtrack to that great community that they have in Shakedown Street and all. Mickey, do you ever put on a baseball cap and go walk around Shakedown Street yourself just to kind of see what's going on? <laughs> One time, Bob and I, he said, Bob said, okay, we're going to go out there and we'll go in disguise. Okay. okay. So Bob gave me a disguise and then he put on a disguise and we went out there in the parking lot in, a, in a, one of those uh, carts. And we, as soon as we got into the parking lot, this guy comes right up to me and he puts his head in my, right in front of my face, like four inches. He goes, Mickey, I love you. And I go, oh man. I said, just be quiet. Don't say anything. Just stay there. <laughs> Don't do anything. But Bob had dressed me up and like I looked in 1969. So everybody knew who I was and I didn't see what he did to me. So that was not very successful. So I had, we had to beat it back out. I've never really been and shake down street. It's interesting, right? Cause you don't want to, uh, you've helped create that whole community, but you don't want to do too much to uh, mess with it in a way. No, of course that, that, it was their creation being a deadhead. We didn't make deadheads. They made deadheads. You know, I mean, we didn't say this is what it takes to be a deadhead. So it's that kind of discovery of group power, like Woodstock, like any of our shows, you see 20,000 people out there. That's power. It's group power. That means unity. That means synergy. Synergy is a big word in our world, you know, to be able to put different parts of our senses together to make a whole and entrain and be in sync and do all the things you need to be to make music, whether it be jazz or any kind of music. So, Grateful Dead is sort of like a jazz band, and it, but it has a backbeat, a real strong groove, improvising as in jazz. Wasn't it the great Ornette Coleman? Didn't he used to sit in with you guys? Ornette, he came and joined us a couple of times. Now that was beautiful. He loved Jerry. Ornette Coleman loved Jerry. Jerry loved Ornette. Uh, at first it was startling, you know, what he was doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you sit back and you, you get into the groove with him and you realize this guy is a visionary and he's playing future music now here. And so I, I wouldn't want to do it every night, but it was brilliant when it happened. What is uh, John Mayer meant for Dead & Company in terms of the synergy you're speaking about? Well, he's a real student of Grateful Dead music. I'll say that. I've never met anybody who can play Grateful Dead music quite like that. I mean, he really practiced it. He really learned it. He would have his trailer out in the back of our, our rehearsal hall for a month. He put in his time uh, and he's revived the Deadheads and, and Grateful Dead music. Me and Bob and Bill, we were looking for somebody like John. He was a fan of ours. We met him at Don Waz's office, me and Bob, and he just came, he was playing in a studio downstairs. And he just walked up and he opened the door and he said, oh man, you gotta do it all. I said, great, I'd love you. This and Althea, and he started yeah. going on and on. You can see the guy was very passionate. So that was the first clue. He was a very passionate, skilled guitar player that could take us into the future, perhaps. He was nice. He was really a nice guy, friendly. 
he felt a good vibe from him and him and Bob hit it off. You know, there's something about the the deadheads. I remember hearing Brantford Marsalis uh, being interviewed. They asked him about coming up and playing with you guys, which he played, you know, uh, a good bit with you guys uh, in the 90s, I guess the 80s and 90s. Um, but he said that after he started playing with you guys, deadheads began showing up at his concerts. Oh, really? And you would have these people that go to see jazz wearing suits and dressed up nice. And then you'd have these like tie dye shirts in the crowd. And it was just quite a. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. But she's a brilliant player. Yeah, they should be going to hear him because he's a virtual. He's one of those virtuoso players. Yeah. You know, hey, you don't get that. Hey, Mickey, um, you know, we're here talking with one of the greatest journalists of our time, uh, Mr. Robert Costa. Uh, and uh, you had a longtime friendship with with another great journalist. Would you talk about your friendship with uh, Walter Cronkite for a minute? Walter and I were close friends for 28 years. Uh, I met him when I did the, the score for his uh, his uh, sailing movie in eighty something, eighty nine, and or eighty seven, eighty seven. The Walter Cronkite Report, the America's Cup. He walked into the studio. No one could get him to put his dialogue onto this film. He was traveling all around the world, you know, and no one could really go up to Walter and say, hey, Walter, we really need you. He just didn't do that to Walter, uh, from what I understood. I was up there just to check on some kind of something uh, at CBS, and he walks in, and there's Walter Cronkite. I said, said, well, take a shot. I need this dialogue or else I can't really do the music. So I said... Hi, Mr. Cronkite. He said, well, he knew who I was. He said, thank you, Mr. Hart. Uh, I said, call me Mickey. And he just said, okay, Mr. Hart. You know, <laughs> he was a very <laughs> formal guy when we first met. I said, well, Walter, or Mr. Cronkite at the time, I said, you see that door over there? You can have this movie fit like a glove, or you can have it fit like a cheap suit. If you walk through that door with me, it'll fit like a glove. If you give me a dialogue, he says, I'm with you, mister. <laughs> and here we go. Walk through the door and I'll cross the table from Walter Cronkite. And he gets to the end. And that's, and this is Walt Cronkite. Uh, sailing experience like no other. And that's the way it is. I go, I'm sitting, I can't believe he's saying this in front of me. I said, well, Mr. Cronkite, would you please say that again? I thought, take a <laughs> shot. You got to hear this guy say it again <laughs> because it's Walter. You'll never get another chance is what my thought was. And so he, he gladly did the, the closing lines, you know, and that's the way he Walter. And I go, wow, that's great. Thanks a lot, Mr. Cronkite. And he said, hey, you hungry? Yeah. He said, well, let's go out and eat. So we went had dinner. That we went to his home, and from there on, it was true love. Every Thanksgiving, we were together, and we, we spent holidays together, and he learned to drum. The big takeaway is he loved rhythm and in music. He loved Dixieland music, but he loved the rhythm of it. So I gave him one drum, and it wound up that he had like 20 30 drums in his apartment at the end there. Uh, like no matter who came through the door, Mike Wallace or whoever, they'd have to drum with Walter. <laughs> it wasn't. And uh, he got really serious. Uh, like we were in his living room playing drums one time and, 
And we were all playing on djembes, on hand drums. And uh, his chief of staff, Marlene, came up and said, we've got a noise complaint. We've got to, you've got to stop. And Walter says, stop? She said, it's the people upstairs. And he goes, okay, this is for the people downstairs. And I said, Walter, I'd be honored to go to jail with you. We'd be in the in, in the paddy wagon, me and you. I'd be an it'd be an honor. And he, we started playing, and we went off and on. So that was Walter. He was as funny as could be. That's just beautiful. And he was a classy guy. I'm not surprised that you two were friends because I've always thought, as a reporter, that rock musicians, musicians in general who travel around the country, are really reporters in your own way. Because you're seeing the country, you're talking to people, you're seeing people react, you're seeing the country evolve and change. Mm-hmm. And most people who make business trips, they're dealing with their, their business and their meetings. But musicians and reporters have some kind of kindred spirit in that you're both going out to meet people, to talk to people, mm-hmm. to feel the vibrations of the country. And I, right. so I'm not surprised you and Cronkite had a connection. Mm. But it's different in some ways because, sure. yes, it is. It was, it was very fortunate. But I don't know if you get clap back right away. You know, I mean, I, I hit a, a beat or a groove and I can see the ripple in the crowd. So I get an immediate response. For you, it's not like that. You True. get it in time lapse. You start to read what you wrote from other people. And that's how you get your, your feedback. Is that correct? That's right. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. It's a, you get the immediate feedback. We're still out there looking, seeing, hearing. We're the eyes and ears of the world. I it's love a, that that's song. A, yeah. That's a real important thing to be, you know, and you take that seriously. You do. I do. And everybody who's a professional at, this, at the level that we're, you know, practicing our professions, take it really seriously or you couldn't be there. And, and, but the thing about it is, you, you take more fire than I do. You see, that's the other part. I've see, seen, uh, hey, Mickey, I've seen some pretty tough deadheads in my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're getting, you, but they're zipping by you all day and yeah. night, man. Everybody's after you. Uh, everybody who doesn't understand what's really going on. And like any reporter, I would imagine you have your friends and foes. I assume you get feedback from both. No, that's certainly right. But uh, you just got to keep the beat going. I mean, I'm, it's interesting, right? As a reporter, what do we say? The phrase we use, I'm on the beat. Yeah. On the beat. On the beat, in the groove. Without that, then you have no strength. Because if you're flopping around, you don't know what you're going to do or how to do it. So being in the groove is not just musically. In life, if you're in a groove in life, you're in a groove. Your output is extraordinary. I mean, how you can go and interview someone you've been peppering for a week or two or three for an interview, and all of a sudden you got your chance like the other day. You know, you say, I I was just trying to talk to you on your way to the train. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Bernie. Yeah. And so and now here we are. So I can sit down with you and realistically talk about some issues of great importance instead of having to chase these guys around the world. You know what I write to myself, Mickey, before every interview? I put it on my notebook. I wrote, write the phrase, be here now. Yeah, be here now. That's not so easy to be. No. But that's exactly right. Be here now. And that's a very Zen uh, way of looking at life. And 
as an artist, I think all artists have to assume that the now is where you create. Now, I created my dreams a lot. So I'm a lucid dreamer. I'm playing the drums in my dreams. I'm playing gongs. I'm playing, I'm doing things musically mostly. I dream it seriously. That's what I take into the studio with me every every day. Without that, I wouldn't be whole. I couldn't, I couldn't exist. I'm I don't think I'm that strong to be able to be without music. Uh, I just don't. Mickey, do you have any words of encouragement for everybody out there right now? People are mourning the loss of, of loved ones. Sure. Just stay with it. The sun will come up. Be safe. Be healthy. Take care of the business. And we can make it through this. We will make it through this. And the music will play again. I assure you, it will play again. You know, know, Mickey, I just keep thinking of uh, Touch of Grey, the end of Touch of Grey, when it goes from I will get by to we will get by. That's right. We will survive. We will survive. We will get by. We will survive. That's a good thought to keep in the front of your mind. And through all of this darkness, you got to believe in that. You have to have a belief in that or else you're going to get caught up and you're going to get nicked and something's going to happen to you. And it won't be pretty. You just got to. Do the best you can and stay away from that virus. Just stay away from the the death virus there. I echo Bob's sentiments there where I've thought about that song a lot, the course a lot. I think about the song. Well, every time, every time, every time I play it, when it comes to that point, I get chills for sure, you know, because (laughs) that's the big deal. You got to survive and you got to get by and we will survive. It's not like you will, we will get, you know, and that's, that's the name of that song. And that's where Hunter wanted the, uh, the accent to be. He made very careful a uh, note of that. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, that, was, that was good. Well, Mr. Costa, Mr. Hart, thank you so much. Mr. Hart, as Cronkite would say. That's the way it is. <laughs> thank you guys. You're the best. This has been awesome. This has made my, uh, my month at least. Oh, Jesus, that's so good. I'm, I'm very yeah, happy. It was, it was great to talk with both of you. I hope to hope we can get to enjoy some music together at some point. I would love that. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris Pod.